Well, again, good afternoon. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, would you take it out, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 11? Matthew chapter 11 is where I'm inviting you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter 11, and uh, we'll read verse 30 and then the last few verses in this chapter that will provide the uh, idea for what it is that we'll discuss tonight. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 30. Thank you for being here, um, especially those who are visiting. We're so grateful for your presence. I hope we've made you feel that way. Uh, and if you have any questions at all about anything that we do or say here tonight, don't hesitate to ask. We would love to talk to you about those things. Uh, we uh, love talking about the things of the Lord, and our worship to Him is part of that. And so we're glad you're here, and we hope that uh, God is glorified by the things that we do, uh, both in our worship and in our service. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 30 is where we'll be. Um, did you enjoy school growing up? I was one of those kids. I mostly enjoyed school. I've always loved to learn I'm from a family of educators. And uh, like most people, I had good teachers and bad teachers during the course of my academic career. But I was blessed that I had a lot more good teachers than I did bad teachers. My worst year was in the third grade. Um, the, the lady who was teaching us in the third grade, she was... Uh, well, looking back on it, she was probably just burnt out, right? She didn't want to be there, didn't seem like she liked kids very much, uh, she was boring, she wasn't much fun, uh, she gave us worksheet after worksheet after worksheet after worksheet and hours and hours and hours of homework um, every week, and uh, she gave us these super long spelling tests, and you know me, you've known me for over a decade now, you know how well I would do on a bunch of spelling tests in the third grade, not adult Reagan spelling third grade Reagan spelling, it was a struggle, to say the least. And so I was really ecstatic over Christmas break when I found out we were getting a new teacher. And she was much, much worse. This lady, instead of being burnt out, she was just angry. Um, as an adult, I look back on it, and she probably had a lot of things going on in her personal life that I didn't know about. But as a third grader, I was like, what's the deal? What's going on? After a few weeks, um, most of that anger began to be directed at me because my dad was the principal and they had had a couple of run-ins um, with one another. Uh, it got so bad, in fact, that she would take those, uh, you remember those erasers for like uh, the actual chalkboards that were like hard black erasers? Um, she would throw erasers at me. Um, I was pretty quick, so not a lot of them made contact, but sometimes when you're not looking, a, an eraser comes out of the air. Um, she would uh, send me out into the hall, and to this day, I don't know why she was sending me out there, but she would send me out there, close the door, and then refuse to tell me what we had studied about uh, during the class. And when she finally did come out to see me, she would open the door, and she would chew me out, yell at me, where everybody else in the class heard it. It was horrible. It was horrible. Absolutely horrible. Um, so that was third grade. In fourth grade... My teacher was my mother, <laughs> uh, and what a welcome change it was to have somebody who loved me, who wanted the best for me, who was excited about teaching, and yeah, my mom was a tough teacher. There was a lot of work that we had to do, and she had high expectations for us as students, but I gladly did all of that work to get out of that third grade classroom. Maybe all of us have a story like that um, with a teacher or maybe a coach or a boss 
or bosses, right, where you experience something really good and you experience something really bad. And it causes you to appreciate more the good because of the bad that you experienced. And, and sadly, maybe some have even had that experience with parents or spouses. Any fool or fourth grader could see which of those two classrooms were better for me, for Reagan McClinney. Now I want you to imagine a scenario where after being in my mom's class for just a little while, I say, you know what, this isn't really as good as I hoped it would be. Why don't I just return back to third grade and that same teacher? Can you imagine any scenario where that would ever happen? It's inconceivable, isn't it? And yet, that is exactly what some Christians do. Some people do when it comes to service to Christ versus service to the world. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 30, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're familiar with the image even though we're not as much of an agricultural society as they were. A yoke is a horizontal frame. It's usually made out of wood and it was placed on the necks of oxen and other beasts of burden like mules for them to do the work of pulling for their masters, whether that was pulling a cart or a plow or a wagon or whatever. In the Bible, we see literal yokes, of course, and yokes of oxen, but we also see this phrase used metaphorically. And when it's used metaphorically, that idea of a yoke is not just the idea of service, that you're doing work, it's also almost always an image, a metaphor for submission to authority. Submission to authority. If you put on someone's yoke, that means you have submitted to their authority, their rule over your life, just like an oxen to the one who is driving or using those oxen. And so Jesus says, my yoke is easy. Uh, the idea is that there is a relaxation to the yoke. And using those two words together doesn't make a ton of sense from a physical standpoint. A yoke, this kind of burden, and yet it is one that is restful, one that is easy. And yet that's exactly what Jesus offers. But when we think about this image of a, of a literal yoke, but also this metaphorical yoke, being in submission to someone's authority, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, but the reality is that most yokes are not. Most yokes, in that metaphorical sense, people to whom we have to submit, are not going to be as easy as what we see in Jesus Christ. And maybe... Maybe we would be more eager to take on Christ's yoke, to embrace the yoke, the service of Christianity, the submission to Christ in all things in our life, if we saw this reality more clearly, that Jesus' yoke is easy, His burden is light, but most yokes are not easy, and most burdens are heavy. You see it right here, of course, in our text. If, if you could drop back to verse 28, Jesus offers an invitation at the end of this series of uh, sayings that he gives. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Now, he probably does not have in mind the idea of, of physical work there. It's probably the idea of weary and heavy laden spiritually with sin, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek or gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All those who are burdened and heavy laden by sin and guilt and purposelessness and discontentment can find forgiveness and relief direction, and meaning under the yoke of Jesus Christ. But we see this concept of service to God, taking on the yoke of God, illustrated throughout the Bible. And I want to look at one in particular from our our Bible reading from last week. Turn over, if you would, to 2 Chronicles chapter 12. 2 Chronicles chapter 12. This is during the days of Rehoboam. And that image of a yoke comes up with Rehoboam. We remember that. The people had come to Rehoboam and they had asked him, will you lighten, and they used that term, the yoke, the yoke that your father Solomon had on us. Will you lighten our burden? And uh, Rehoboam says, I'm not going to lighten it, I'm going to make it heavier. But notice what we find after the kingdom is taken away from Rehoboam in 2 Chronicles chapter 12. Begin reading with me in verse 1, if you would, 2 Chronicles 12 and verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and he had strengthened himself, that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. And it happened that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord with 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen, And people without number who came with him out of Egypt and the surrounding regions, the Lubim and the Sukkaim and the Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and came to Jerusalem. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who were gathered together in Jerusalem because of Shishak and said to them, Thus says the Lord, You have forsaken me, And therefore I have left you in the hand of Shishak. So the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and they said, The Lord is righteous. Uh, They are coming back to the Lord and that's exactly what should have happened. But notice what the Lord does in verse 7. Now when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, They have humbled themselves, therefore I will not destroy them. But... I will grant them some some deliverance. There are still some consequences to their actions, but they are not going to be totally destroyed. My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they will be his servants. For what reason? Um, Is God doing this just for punishment? No. It's also so that they might learn a lesson. And what's the lesson? That they may distinguish my service from the service of the kingdoms of the nations. And he goes on to say that Shishak comes from Egypt against Jerusalem. He takes the gold from the temple. A number of other things transpire. But Rehoboam stays in power. The kingdom remains. Um, And ultimately, though they are in service to Egypt, the the nation of Judah remains. I, I think there is a great lesson or three great lessons that we might learn from this passage. 
three realities of service to God that we can see from Rehoboam and what we find here in this passage. Notice with me, first of all, that if we forsake the Lord, that's what happened in verse 1 with Rehoboam and all the people of Israel, the Lord, He will leave us in the hands of the world. That's what happened in verse 5. That's what the Lord said, right? I'm going to give them over to Shishak. That we may distinguish His service, the service of God, from the service of the kingdoms of the nations as we see there in verse 8. Of course, it's especially fitting that God would say this to Rehoboam. Rehoboam was trying to distinguish himself from his father. And he arrogantly told the tribes of Israel, remember, and now whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips. I will chastise you with scourges or scorpions. So Rehoboam's trying to distinguish himself. He says, Rehoboam, uh, Solomon and his reign, I'm going to be different. I'm distinguished in my reign. And it's the severity of my rule that's going to distinguish me. You're going to see that I'm different because I'm going to be harder on you than even my father was. And of course he lost ten tribes because of that to Jeroboam. But now God is the one who's going to distinguish himself. And God says that I'm going to distinguish my gracious and generous rule. All of the blessings that you've received when you were in service to me, I'm going to distinguish that from the severity of Shishak of Egypt to remind the people how good they had it when they were under my care. And that same concept applies to us as well doesn't it? Turn in your New Testament to Romans chapter 1, if you would. We'll look at a few passages from Romans in this section of the lesson. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 makes clear that people can know God. People can know God even from the creation, right? We're without excuse because we see God in the things that are made. But God has also revealed himself to us, and so we can know God personally. We can know of him, and yet still there are a number of people in this time and even today who refuse to, to listen to God or acknowledge God. And so in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions. God gave them up. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, not that they couldn't have retained God, they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting and it goes on to list all of the things that they were filled with. Their minds and their actions were, were filled with all of this unrighteousness. Twice in these verses, verse 26 and again in verse 28, we see that God gives them over or gave them over to these things. He gave them up to a debased mind. Now God acts here, uh, but they were the ones who chose it. God wanted to have a relationship with them, but they were the ones who said, no, I don't want to have a relationship with you. I don't want to know you. And so you know what God does? Fine, 
If that's what you want, then that's what you get. It was their choice, so God let them have their way. And that's what God does for all of us. If you want to go that way, God says, go ahead. I am not going to override your free will. It is your choice. See what that brings you. And just like with these people in Romans 1, turning our back on God in this way where he gives us up only brings a lifetime of heartache and broken promises from the devil. If you don't serve me, God says, you're going to serve the world and see if the world is a better master than I am. And really, that's our second point. Um, We all serve someone, all of us, whether we want to or not, whether we admit it or not, we all serve someone. Turn over a few chapters in Romans chapter 6. We see this idea. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart, that, that form, uh, that's the word, Two posts, the idea of a type or a pattern. You, you obeyed from the heart that type of doctrine to which you were delivered. Paul says you were told what you needed to do to become a Christian and you did that. And, and praise be to God for that. You were slaves of sin, but now you're not anymore. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you became what? Slaves, again. But now slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Uh, You were a slave to sin, so you didn't have to do what was right. Uh, You were serving a different master than God. What fruit, verse 21, did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? Well, maybe you're complaining about having to do what God would have you to do. Okay, remember what it was like when you were free from righteousness but a slave of sin? What fruit did you have there? Was it good? Was it holy? Was it fulfilling? For the end of those things, he says, verse 21, is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and to the end, what? Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the choice. The choice before all of us. We're all going to be slaves to somebody. Is it going to be a slave to God leading to life? Or a slave of sin leading to death. Those are the choices. And we do have a choice in that. But we all serve someone. Now, there are some people who want to deny that. Maybe most of us, when we hear that, I mean, we're Texans, we're Americans. When we hear that, we say, not us. No, we're, we're not servants to anybody. We don't bow the knee. We don't kiss the ring. We're not slaves, we're not servants, we're not under anyone's heel. I don't submit to anyone except myself, that sort of thing. 
One of the funniest statements in Jesus' many exchanges with the religious rulers of his day is found in John chapter 8. We are not the first people to say we have never been slaves to anybody when that's really not the case. In John chapter 8, read with me beginning in verse 31. Verse 31 and 32 are such comforting scriptures to us as Christians. But for the Jews of that day, this was offensive, what Jesus is about to say. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Wonderful. That's not their reaction. They got hung up on that idea of being made free. And so they answered in verse 33, We are Abraham's descendants. What in the world do you think you're saying? Do you know who we are? We are the chosen people of God. We are Abraham's descendants and we have never been in bondage to anyone. Really? What what about Assyria? What about Egypt? What about Babylon? What about Rome under whose heel they currently were? They had been slaves to people throughout their entire existence. And yet that was their attitude. We don't serve anybody. No. And maybe that's our attitude too. And if that's the case, how can you say you will be made free? If I'm already free, I can't be made free. And Jesus answered them, verse 34, with words we all need to hear. Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. In reality, the question for all of us human beings is not... Do I have a master or not? The real question is, what is my master like? What is the master that I choose for myself? I mean, most slaves don't get that kind of freedom to choose their master, but I get to choose my master. So what is my master going to be like? A master who is cruel and heartless or a master who by the blood of his son adopts me? into his very own family. For Rehoboam, all of this was foretold, of course, in the covenant between God and his people in the book of Deuteronomy. You turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. God did not spring this on his people. This was part of the covenant that they themselves had agreed to. In the book of Deuteronomy, we see blessings for faithfulness and curses for unfaithfulness clearly described in chapters 27 and 28. Blessings in 27, curses in 28. The blessings were many, the blessings were great and wonderful, but included in the curses for unfaithfulness was the penalty of military conquest and foreign rule. If you're unfaithful, I'm going to give you up to other nations who are going to come in and rule over you. Notice verse 47 and 48. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in need of everything. 
and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, and he goes on to describe all of those things. And so our third and final point tonight, the reality of service to God is this. God uses both the abundance of everything, that's what he says in verse 47, that's what you had, that wasn't good enough for you, and the need of everything, which is what they would have under this foreign rule, for what purpose? To try and draw his people into his service. That's what God wants. And how often is that the case? God's desire is always to draw us closer to Him. And He desires to do so by trying to bless us, giving us a life filled with love and joy and peace and grace and contentment and hope and purpose and wisdom and discernment and fulfillment. It is the abundance of everything that God gives us, or at least everything that really matters. It might not be a mansion and a bank account that numbers in the billions, But what it is, is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. God wants us to be close to Him because of all of these things that He has given us. And that should work, shouldn't it? But we know too often, even in our own lives, that it doesn't. We're ungrateful for the things God has given us. And if it doesn't work then he will use curses, if necessary, to fulfill his justice. But not just to fulfill his justice. He will use curses in a last-ditch effort to draw us to him through hardship. It is not a political ruler like Shishak that draws this distinction, but it is slavery to the world. It is a life of lust and depression and strife and punishment discontentment, hopelessness, empty striving, foolishness, ignorance, vanity, and need of everything. Well, need of everything that really matters. Because what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? It's all vanity and grasping for the wind, as the wise man Solomon came to that conclusion. We might put it in modern terms, I've, I've heard people say this, life's hard and then you die. What a miserable existence that is. And yet for many people, that is their reality. Research from Boston University School of Public Health from the end of 2021 reveals that the rate of depression in America has climbed to 32.8%. In other words, one in every three Americans would fall under the definition of clinical depression. One in three Americans. According to a Cato Institute survey at the end of 2019, 68% of those who attend a religious service weekly strongly believe that their life has purpose and meaning. Strongly believe that their life has purpose and meaning. But you compare that to other folks. Only 36% of those who do not attend a religious service weekly believe that their life has purpose and meaning. Only 29% of non-believers felt that that they had a purpose to their life. Over 70% of the people out there who don't believe in God see no purpose for their life. They've got a hole. They've got a hole in their heart and in their soul that only God can fill. And my prayer 
is that that hole drives them to Jesus. And my prayer is that we may be the light of their way into Christ's service. Because we know what it's like to serve under the yoke of the King of kings and Lord of lords. We know what it's like to serve under a yoke that is light and easy. We know what it's like to serve the one who serves. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I remind you, we all serve someone. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, but most yokes are not easy. Most yokes are not light. And you can come, and you can come and make your life right with Jesus to take on His yoke, to submit yourself to His authority. But if you're already a Christian and you're flirting with a return to the world, what are you doing? Respectfully. Are you crazy? I want you to turn to one more passage with me, if you would, and that's 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18. We'll read this last passage together. I did it to you twice today. You put your Bible up and everything and then said, get it out one more time. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. These are the false teachers who are coming in. And these people have become Christians and somehow, some way, these false teachers are convincing them to, to get out of Christ. How? Verse 19. While they promise them liberty. Oh, your yoke is too heavy. Uh, you shouldn't have to serve God and do all of these things. They themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandments delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Or, this is mine that I'm adding on there, a fourth grader returning to that third grade class. Why in the world would we want to do that? If, if we've truly tasted, if we've truly tasted what we can have in Christ Jesus, that he is gracious that he wants to bless us and that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's the choice that stands before each one of us. A dog, a sow, that's just their nature. But for us, for human beings made in the image of God, God says, I give you the choice. Won't you choose me? Won't you choose God this evening? And we encourage you to do so as together we stand and while we sing. Take my life and let it